For the second weekend in a row, Gonzaga traveled across the state of Washington and lost to the Huskies, this time the defending champions in UConn. Is it time to hit the panic button, particularly with Gonzaga's struggles to knock down the three-point shot? You are Locked on Zags, your daily podcast on the Gonzaga Bulldogs. Part of the Locked on Podcast Network, your team every day. What is going on, y'all? Welcome to the Locked On Zags podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. I'm your host and longtime Gonzaga podcaster, Andy Patton, here to bring you news and updates on all things Zag athletics. Today's episode of Locked On Zags is brought to you by Prize Picks. Folks, go to prizepicks.com slash locked on college, use their promo code locked on college, and you'll get a first deposit match of up to $100. Prize Picks is daily fantasy sports made easy. Today is Mailbag Monday. We are, of course, going to go over Gonzaga's loss to UConn on Friday evening. For those of you who want to be involved in Mailbag Monday, easiest way to do so is to join our Discord channel. It is free. There is a link in the show notes. Click that link. You'll be invited in. We have a mailbag uh, thread that you can just click on there, submit your questions at any point, and I will get them answered into the show. So Gonzaga lost 76-63 to the UConn Huskies on Friday, and I feel like this game was kind of a good litmus test for where the fan base is with regards to this team. I think some people took this game to be a a much more problematic loss. Some people kind of said, hey, they competed well against a really, really good team. Uh, Austin on Discord uh, asked a question that helps wrap this up really well. He says, not the outcome we wanted, but I think GU showed some grit. UConn had some opportunities to bury Gonzaga, but GU kept fighting and within arm's length. I think there were some good things to come out of this game. Did you feel the same or was it a good old beatdown? Yeah, I think that's kind of the, the difference. I saw a Gonzaga team that stayed within a, a striking distance of a UConn team throughout the contest. I also saw a UConn team that never really let Gonzaga get closer. Some of that was Gonzaga missing opportunities. There were open three-point shots that if they'd knocked them down, it would have taken the lead down to eight or seven or somewhere in that range. The crowd was very pro-Gonzaga. That place would have popped off. Maybe that momentum swing could keep them around. It reminded me a little bit of the flip of the USC game where Gonzaga got out to a huge lead, withstood any attempts USC made to get back closer into that game, and never really let them quite get within striking distance. That's sort of how this felt uh, on the flip side, of course, where UConn got out to a big lead, made adjustments, took the counter punches that Gonzaga gave them, and just kind of professionally secured themselves a victory. And I think in a lot of ways, this, this win said more about UConn than Gonzaga. UConn is is an exceptionally good team. From a talent perspective, they're one of the two best teams in the country. They might not be second. Uh, I will probably have them ranked number one in my top 25 at Locked On College Basketball uh, on Monday. I think that is my expectation as this is coming out is that they'll be the, the number one ranked team in the country. And I think they should be. But the problem, and we said this last week about the Washington loss as well, is that Gonzaga's issues are still there. If Gonzaga was a team that hadn't showed a lot of flaws or problems at all this season, and then they just got beat by 13 by a good UConn team that they stayed within, you know, that they never really let blow them out, I would probably not have a whole lot of negativity to say at all. Like, well, UConn's really good. They came in. They, they took care of business. That is what it is. But Gonzaga can't shoot threes. And Gonzaga's guard depth is not good. And for those who missed this story because it got buried, Luka Krinovich, unfortunately, is going to be out four to six weeks with a wrist injury he suffered in practice. 
the bad luck continues for Gonzaga, of course, to steal Venter's injury prior to the season. Now Luka Krinovich out. There was also the Caden Perry injury that has ended his career prematurely. Uh, various other things. It's just been a bad, an unlucky year for Gonzaga in a lot of ways. But I don't feel like this game in a vacuum in, in itself is a huge issue for Gonzaga. Playing tough against a really, really good team just doesn't strike me as, as something I'm ultimately concerned about. But Gonzaga is not able to fix the issues that are plaguing them this year. And until that happens, they're going to, there's going to be cause for concern. And that's what we're going to talk about here. Uh, as Austin also asked about this, as well as Christian via Gmail, as well as Grand Chef Auto on Discord, they all asked about Gonzaga's three-point shooting. What is causing the issue? What can be done to fix it? There's kind of a, a variety of things that seem to be causing the issue. The number one thing, in my mind, is that the personnel isn't really there. And certain guys are not shooting up to expectation. That is absolutely a part of it. But this team isn't built with the current roster construction to be a very good three-point shooting team. Huge part of that is the loss of Steel Venters. He was on this roster in part to provide floor spacing. I say in part, not really in part. That was his role. That was his job. That's what he was going to do. Mark Few didn't bring him in here to play defense. He did not bring him in here to post up. He did not bring him in here to to do anything else other than shoot threes. Obviously, anything else he, he provided would have been a bonus, but that's not what he was here to do. But they don't have him. And you, you just don't have like, – Dusty Stromer shooting 29.5%. I don't think we would have expected much more than that. I think he will improve as the season goes on, but he wasn't brought in to be a lights-out three-point shooter as a freshman. He was brought in to provide energy and defense and length on the perimeter, and he's doing that. But he's not a three-point shooter. Nolan Hickman's about 35%. That's where he was last year. I'd like to see him improve, but I don't think you can be critical of Nolan Hickman's three-point shooting in particular. You can be critical of him for other things. He did not have a good game against UConn, but that's not really an area that he's not providing. Ryan Nemhart, on the other hand, 18.8% on the season. This has to improve. It has to. He's a career 35% three-point shooter. He's well, well, well below that. Some of that is likely fatigue. Some of that just from having to play as big of a role as he is. Uh, some of it's just early season sample size is kind of wonky. Uh, some of it is just he hasn't been a good three-point shooter. That needs to improve for him. But right now, there is a, a, there's a, a combination of not having the right personnel, having a few guys not stepping up. In terms of Gonzaga's three-point shooting improving, outside of hoping Nemhard starts to right the ship, there's not a ton that can be done. Now, Gonzaga's bigs are all good at three-point shooting. Graham Ike is the worst of the four bigs in terms of percentage. He's shooting 36%. Granted, it's four of 11, but still, Watson's over 40%. Both Ben Gregg and Braden Huff are over 40%. But I don't think the answer to, oh, Gonzaga needs to boost their three-point percentage and make more threes is to just have the bigs shoot more threes. If that works within the flow of the game plan, sure. But I don't think that, like, Murphy's not telling the team, like, okay, we need Ben Gregg to take more threes. Like, that's not the solution necessarily. Again, within a certain game plan, it might be. Uh, the game plan might be, hey, let's face the floor. Let's spread it out a little bit. Like I was hoping to see Gonzaga try to pull Donovan Klingon away from the rim in this game as, as a way to potentially, uh, you know, not not allow him to be the rim protector that he is. And, and it didn't really work for Gonzaga. They didn't really try it as much as I would have liked to see them do. And it just never really came together. But there are some things Gonzaga can do to improve the three-point shooting. But at the end of the day, this isn't a roster particularly built to be a good three-point shooting team without steel venters. Maybe Yo steps into a bigger role. He's three of 14 on the year. That's a tiny sample size, but 
you know, we, we'd like to see him be a, he needs to have a bigger role, especially now with Krinovich hurt, but we'd also like to see him step into more of a three-point role. But again, I don't think there's a lot of solutions to this problem uh, other than Gonzaga just having to try to find ways to win games without being a great three-point shooting team. Final question of the first segment here comes from Jeff via Gmail. Jeff says the Gonzaga defense is not the problem this year. They held Purdue to 73, Washington to 78, UConn to 76, all really good. If the offense had showed up and made a couple more shots, Gonzaga could have won those games. When have you ever seen a Gonzaga offense this off the way they are this year? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I think Gonzaga's offense certainly has looked bad at, at times and bad enough you know, for them to lose three games that you'd like to see them win again, Purdue, UConn are two of the three best teams in the country. UW is good this year. They're, they're not a team that you want to lose to, not a team that you should lose to, but that's the only bad loss in this group. And it's not, you know, it's not Mississippi Valley State. It's, 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 a, it's a good UW team. Regardless, Gonzaga's 21st in adjusted offensive efficiency, 22nd in adjusted defensive efficiency at Ken Palm. Those numbers do account for strength of schedule. Yes, Gonzaga's offense has dominated against teams like Arc Pine Bluff and Mississippi Valley State and whomever, and that does change that equation. But it's not like Gonzaga's offense has really been terrible. They're shooting 49% from the field as a team. That's pretty good, 32.6% from three. Obviously, that's part of the issue for them. But I think this the issue really is that Gonzaga's offense late in the game is bad because they don't have enough depth. It's the same issue we've been talking about all season long. Gonzaga's offense was good in the first half against Washington, bad in the second half. Gonzaga's offense was a little inconsistent in both halves against UConn in part because UConn's really good, but it was better in the first half. I just think that Gonzaga is, is they don't have enough horses, and that's something that has been a problem. The guys that that they need to be rotation players just aren't ready yet. Now Krinovich is hurt. That's a significant problem for them, but Yo needs to step into that role. And I, they're also averaging 82.9 points per game, which I want to acknowledge something here real quick. This is the lowest points per game Gonzaga has averaged since 2016-17. That team went to the national championship. That wasn't part of their defense. I don't think that there's anything to really glean from that other than this. Every single season before 2016-17, Gonzaga did not average 82.9 points per game. So this is the – and again, we're, it's, a, it's a partial season, so that data is, is skewed. But 83 points per game is the worst Gonzaga has been since 2017, a, spe- a stretch of seven years. It is also the best they would have ever put together ever in school history prior to 2017. Obviously, some of that is the modern era, the three-point. Like, there's there are some caveats to that. But still, I think that's worth acknowledging that we've been spoiled the last half decade by extraordinarily efficient, high-scoring Gonzaga offenses that we're looking at 83 points per game and saying, what the heck is wrong with this offense? When in reality, for anybody who, who only followed Gonzaga up to 2016, that'd be the most points per game they've ever averaged over the course of a full season. So what's next? What's next for Gonzaga? How can they right the ship? What can they do to still potentially make a deep run in March, keep that Sweet 16 streak alive? We're going to talk about that and more after a word from today's sponsor, eBay Motors. Folks, passion, drive, and patience, that's what brings home the winning trophy, and it's also what helps keep your ride or die alive. And eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more, whether you are into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. And with over 122 million parts to choose from for your ride or die, you will always find exactly what you are looking for. Plus, with eBay's guaranteed fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or you get your money back because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at all the prices you want, 
it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that trophy. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply, and eBay's guaranteed fit is only available to U.S. customers. Folks, one thing I'll be for making Locked On Zags your first listen or your first watch of the day. Of course, I want to shout out those everyday listeners as well as those of you who have joined us on our Discord channel. Again, there is a link in the show notes. You can click that and hang out with us 24-7. Going to continue to go through Mailbag Monday here as we kind of continue processing this loss to the Yukon Huskies, the third loss of the season for the Zags. This question here comes from Austin via Discord. Austin says, three tough losses and two injuries later. I bet things are feeling dreary in the locker room. If you were the coaching staff, what are you telling these young men to keep their heads up and to keep them hungry? So I don't think motivation is an issue with this team. Like in terms of keeping them hungry, I don't think that uh, that that's necessarily something the coaching staff needs to prioritize in terms of of how to kind of work with the players. Um, I, obviously, I'm not around the team. I don't know. Obviously, sir, every player is different. It's not like they all are, are have the same mentality or group think or anything like that. I, I do think that showing confidence in guys and, and kind of trying to stay a, a, a bit positive around some of the things that we know can kind of correct themselves in time. Like the last thing I would want is for Ryan Empire to, to lose confidence in shooting threes. And we saw that a bit in the last game, uh, not with him specifically necessarily, but like Gonzaga is starting to fear shooting threes. And they, I think they only took one three point attempt in the first half against UConn. And, and I think they, they made it. I think Anton Watson made the three and I think that was it. So that is an area where it's like continuing, like knowing what you need to do. There are times when Gonzaga takes bad shots, but there was also a lot of threes in this game. And, and Dusty Stromer is a great example of this. Dusty rarely takes bad threes. He rarely takes threes where you're like, oh, that was too early in the shot clock or he wasn't open or he should have faked and, and put it on the deck or, or swung it around or whatever. He doesn't do that. He pretty regularly takes threes where it's like, yeah, that was a shot he should have take, taken. He went to the right spot. It was in transition. He was open or, you know, the ball swung around to him and he was open and he's just not knocking him down. And so for, for me, like if I was a coach in that situation, it's like, hey, keep it up. Keep doing what you're doing. Like you're not here to, to lose your confidence and stop taking shots. That Like if you're within the flow of the offense and you have an open shot, like we want you to keep taking that. We know it's not going down at the rate you want it to right now, but you got to keep taking those. I'd say the same thing to Ryan Nembhard. Uh, obviously, again, with the context of if you are taking bad shots, we want to work on that too. So even somebody like Yo, it's like, hey, sometimes Yo takes shots he shouldn't take, and I'm sure the staff is working with him on that. But sometimes it's like, okay, that was a good look. He just didn't knock it down. That's fine. That's okay. And so I think working with guys on that stuff, uh, you know, don't 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 like bag on Graham Ek for having a rough night against Donovan Klingon. Like keeping the 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 morale as positive as you possibly can, acknowledging that hey, you know, we've we've had some issues, some things haven't gone our way, these injuries are, are bad luck, and like, you know, we just have to power through. We have to continue to find ways to fight and continue to find ways to win. And it's not easy. I mean, injuries are part of the game, and Gonzaga has been incredibly fortunate to not deal with a lot of injury issues. Uh, throughout Mark Few's tenure, really, as the head coach, but they're, they're dealing with them now. And so I think you kind of kind of find ways to to keep that morale up and, and keep the guys motivated, uh, even though I, I don't think that's a big issue and more just like, hey, don't stop doing what you're doing. Uh, keep, you know, keep keep doing the same things, keep taking the same shots, keep kind of looking for the right opportunities, and, and those things will start to kind of turn around. Next question from Jeff here. He says, for the rest of the season, Gonzaga is currently favored to win every game except the game at Kentucky. What sort of expectation do you have for Gonzaga the rest of the regular season? And is the home game against San Diego State in two weeks a must-win game? Yeah, San Diego State's a must-win. 
it has become, I mean, even as soon as Gonzaga lost to Washington, the San Diego State game became more critical. I also really think that Gonzaga needs to win one out of two between UConn and Kentucky, which now means they got to go win on the road at Rupp. And I know people are like, well, there's no way to win at Rupp against Kentucky. And yeah, Kentucky's really good. Kentucky just beat North Carolina. They're really, really good. And they might be better in February. But this team has also struggled. They lost at home to UNC Wilmington. Gonzaga's better than UNC Wilmington. I'm not saying that Kentucky is going to be like an easy win for Gonzaga or that, oh, they lost to Wilmington, so Gonzaga is going to beat them. I don't. I want to be clear. I don't think that at all. I just mean that Kentucky is also inconsistent. That's the best way to put it. By February, they may not be as inconsistent. Ideally, neither will Gonzaga. That's going to make that a really fun matchup. But San Diego State have to win, have to. You also have to hope San Diego State has a good season in the Mountain West and stays a top 30 team in the net because that gives Gonzaga a quad one victory, and they need that. They need it. Certainly, they'd love to have two, and if they beat Kentucky on the road and San Diego State at home, there's a chance they get two out of those because uh, San Diego State, again, they got a, they're right on the on the borderline of being a quad one game right now, but hopefully they can, they can hang with it. Uh, outside of that, yeah, Gonzaga's – the WCC is pretty weak. Gonzaga's got a, a, gr- a good group of bigs. I think that there's on a real possibility that they run through the WCC. St. Mary's, you know, is going to play Gonzaga tough. They always do. They always do. But they've struggled in significant ways. They beat UNLV, which is a huge win for them. UNLV just beat Creighton. They beat UNLV with Aiden Mahaney going three of 20. So that's a nice, nice performance for Randy Bennett's team. But I think Gonzaga's got a real chance to to power through this WCC season. St. Mary's, you know, they always are a little bit scary. Santa Clara on the road scares me a bit. San Francisco doesn't as much because they're playing at the Chase Center. LMU frankly, doesn't worry me all that much. I just don't think they're that good this year. I don't see them doing what they did last year and beating Gonzaga. Uh, So I think Gonzaga has a real chance to only lose one, maybe two more games the rest of the season that we could be looking at a five loss Gonzaga team at the end of the year. That's pretty darn good. Uh, That's not something that you'd be overly concerned about. It's still not great if there's not any major wins, which again, goes back to the the caveat being that San Diego State really needs to be, uh, can't be one of those losses for this team. Another question from Jeff here. He says, watching Gonzaga play, I'm not sure they have gelled as a team. The fact that the WCC is having a down year might prove a big benefit this season, help them develop the rotation, rhythm, and consistency they'll need in March. And he says, this Gonzaga team looks similar to the 2015, 16, and 17, 18 teams that had roster turnover before the season, struggled early in the non-conference. Both teams figured it out and had fantastic March runs. What does this team need to do to repeat what those teams did in the second half of the season? So yeah, I'm glad you brought up the 17-18 team because Stephen Carr, uh, the fantastic, uh, he works for Gonzaga now, former host of Locked On Zags podcast. He's on Twitter, SCARGO. He did a little thread about comparing this team to the 17-18 team. And there's a lot of very, very comparable similarities. Uh, that team went 2-1 and one at the Phil Knight Invitational, the PK-80. They lost to Florida in overtime, but they won their other games. They got smoked by Villanova, who ended up being the best team in the country. So similar to the UConn loss there. And then they also lost a road game to San Diego State. San Diego State had the exact same number or ranking at Ken Palm as Washington. The exact same. So we're talking about a 17-18 team that went 2-1 and one in, their, in their MTE, same as Gonzaga, lost to the best team in the country in Villanova, similar to Gonzaga and UConn, and lost a road game to San Diego State, who was the same as Washington. When that happened, the, their, the vibes were bad. <laughs> After that San Diego State loss, people were really panicking about that team. Corey Kispert was hurt. 
starting small forward who's a good floor spacer being hurt. The guards were playing 35 plus minutes per night in Josh Perkins and Silas Melson. That sure sounds familiar. Fans were clamoring for more of Jesse Wade to play off the bench, a backup guard. That also sounds familiar. Then after that San Diego State loss, when the fan base was at their lowest, the team went 22-1 and in their next 23 games. They would have probably made the Elite Eight had Killian Dilly not got hurt uh, in that NCAA tournament and that loss to Florida State, but they certainly went to the Sweet 16. They had a real chance to be in the Elite Eight. What does Gonzaga need to do to make that happen? Because we're not just saying, oh, well, look at that. 2017-18 is basically the same start. This is going to be fine. There, things need to change for Gonzaga in order for that to work. Again, Kispert came back from his injury. Steel Venter's not coming back. Krinovich is, but that doesn't change the dynamic the way that Corey does. Yo needs to become a rotation guy. That's a huge part of it. He needs to be 10 to 12 minutes per game. He doesn't need to be elite. He doesn't need to be like this huge breakout star. That would be great, obviously, but he needs to be capable of playing 10 to 12 minutes per night. At this point, there's it's not negotiable. It's not a, oh, well, maybe if the, no, he needs to, because there's no Krinovich. That's not a backup option. It needs to be Yo, and it needs to be now. I mean, that's, that's the biggest thing. Beyond that, threes need to start getting knocked down. Nemhard's percentage needs to come up. Dusty's needs to come up. Hickman's needs to come up. Even if his is fine, it needs to come up. Maybe more bigs, you know, maybe Greg and Huff need to be shooting more, but that needs to come up. You need to take advantage of the weak WCC. If you can do that, win those games, get Yo some more experience on the floor, find the confidence in the outside shooting, maybe you can do it. Maybe you can sneak a four seed like that team was in 2017-18. Maybe you get a four seed in Spokane, heck. Then you got some real momentum going into the NCAA tournament. I'm not saying this is particularly likely necessarily, but to pretend it's not possible, I mean, it happened. It happened five years ago. This could absolutely happen again, or at least something similar to it, uh, where Gonzaga finishes the season on a hot streak and has some momentum going into March. We're going to close out the show answering more listeners submitted, submitted questions, some about the women's basketball team. We're also going to continue to talk about Corey Kispert. All that coming up in just a moment. All right, folks, close out the show today with more listener-submitted questions here. This one comes from Christian via Gmail. Christian says, it appears Yvonne Ejim could be in the rarefied air of the WNBA draft. What are your thoughts on Yvonne's WNBA aspirations? What Lady Zags players have been drafted? And how far could the Lady Zags go in the big dance? So the tough part about the WNBA draft is it is three rounds long, which is great, but it is still only 36 players selected, 12 teams 12 picks per round, 36 total players. Outside of that, every year, tons of players get drafted who don't make the WNBA. This ha- this is an extremely regular occurrence to the point where if you're not drafted in the top 10, you may not make the WNBA. Like It is that difficult to stick on a roster. Roster sizes are small. There's no G League. There's no feeder league of any kind. And this is something that WNBA teams uh, and players have clamored for. We want more of a developmental league. We want more teams. We want more roster spots. Like we're just too many talented players aren't sticking in the WNBA, aren't even making the WNBA. And it's a great example for Gonzaga. She'd be the seventh player in Gonzaga history to get selected in the draft. Vivian Frayson was first in 2010. Courtney Vandersloot was next, of course, in 2011. Kayla Standish and Caitlin Redmond got drafted in 2012. Hayden Palmer in 2014. Jill Barta in 2018. Six players have been drafted out of Gonzaga. Two of them have played in the WNBA. One of them, Caitlin Redman, played seven games. The other one is, of course, Cordy Vandersloot. So getting drafted is not a guarantee to play in the NBA. For the, the opposite, if you get drafted in the NBA draft, your odds of playing in the NBA are extremely high. It is very rare 
if you get drafted out of college to not at least play in the NBA, it, it almost never happens. There's only two rounds, so that's a difference. But there are 60 players selected because there are way more teams. Does Vani Ejim have a chance to play in the WNBA? Absolutely. Her size, her strength, her efficiency around the rim. She's a great rebounder. This year, we're seeing her improve as a passer. Last year, she averaged, I think, like 2.3 assists, or no, sorry, 1.7 assists and 2.3 turnovers. This year, she's over two and a half assists, and her turnovers have dropped. She's a better passer, better facilitator, more efficient scorer, great rebounder, solid defender. There is a lot going for Yvonne in terms of a WNBA team looking at her and saying, hey, this is somebody who could come in and be a backup post for us right away. She absolutely has that. But it is a tough, tough, tough road. And in terms of the ladies' egg ceiling and how far they could go in the big dance, it sort of depends on how they finish up the non-con and, and, and what that seating might look like, which speaking of, this question from Jeff uh, is going to discuss touch on some of that he says with one possible exception of the game against Arizona it looks like the Gonzaga women are favored to win all of their remaining games what expectations do you have during the second half of the season is the neutral court game against Arizona a must win for the ladies eggs to have a chance at a top four seed come March yeah top four seed for Gonzaga only happens if they win every one every one of the rest of their games they have to win all of them We've been talking about the weakness of the WCC from the men's side for those who aren't as plugged in on the women's side it's significantly worse. It's a lot worse from a net perspective. It's, it's bad. It's bad for the men's side. It's not, it's not nearly as bad. San Francisco is a, a solid net team. San, uh, same area is a solid net team. Not as good as we were hoping they would be, which is part of the problem. But on the women's side, they're just bad. There's just not a lot of other promise in the WCC outside of Gonzaga. So they got to win out. And a neutral against Arizona is a good opportunity to pick up a quality win. Arizona is not the premier program in the Pac-12. They're not a super elite team. But, of course, Gonzaga already has that huge win over Stanford in the bag. Would have loved to get one of those two against Washington State and Louisville. Uh, going 0-2 in those games is definitely tough for them. But they still, again, they got that Stanford win. They have a, a handful of other quality wins. Picking up a win at Arizona is great. But if, if they go undefeated, maybe they get a top four seed. Any losses in there. If it's a loss to Arizona and no other losses, four or five still may be a possibility. Any other losses, you're in that six, seven, maybe that dreaded eight, nine category. So it's a tough road for Gonzaga just because of the, the lack of strength in the WCC. But uh, this team is more than capable of, of winning the rest of their games. I mean, they, they have so much experience, so much camaraderie, having played together. Uh, uh, high, high, high-level offense. I mean, they hung 96 on Stanford. This team can score with anybody in the country. I think they're absolutely capable – of winning the rest of their games, getting a four seed and being in the sweet 16, maybe even the elite eight. The bench depth is something that they're going to have to, you know, make sure that they have kind of ironed out throughout the WCC play, maybe get some more uh, playing time for some of, of those players. And that might help them, you know, ascend even farther. But uh, this, this team is capable of it. It's just a matter of, of how the NCAA committee views their resume come selection, selection Monday for the women's side. Final question of the show here comes from Christian. Christian says, what are the possible trade destinations for Corey Kispert? After his recent 23-point performance, I was thinking a potential playoff team that needs 15 to 18 quality minutes a game could use Corey's skills. Yeah, that's the right fit for him. Washington is, I mean, it's, they're a mess of an NBA organization. For anybody who follows the NBA, you know that Washington is just, they're just a disaster right now. They, they are, their moves are questionable. Their draft picks have been bad. They don't seem to have a lot of direction. It's a, it's not an ideal place for somebody like Corey to be. Corey's 24 years old. He has proven over multiple seasons that he is an NBA caliber rotation player and he should be utilized as such. 
And I think this is perfectly set. 15 to 18 minute roll off the bench for Corey Kispert as a floor spacer, as an outside shooter. That is what is best for him in terms of his efficiency, in terms of his productivity, and in terms of him just finding the right role to help an NBA team succeed. I think that that is a perfect role for him. And there are teams that could utilize him. The Los Angeles Lakers come to mind and the Lakers and, and Wizards already connected on a trade with a Zag, of course, last year with Rui Hachimura going from the, uh, the Wizards to the Lakers, having a bunch of success, becoming one of their most prolific bench scorers in a playoff series of all time. He's having success this season as well as in a backup four role with that team. The Lakers are playing Rui and LeBron at the four. Their three position is a little weak and they want shooters. This is the thing that LeBron and Anthony Davis need. Put a bunch of guys who can shoot the rock around them and let those two guys operate. Corey Kispert is a three and he is a shooter. He fits that bill to a T and it'd be lovely to see him end up with the Lakers. Uh, the Cleveland Cavaliers could use more shooting. Karis LeVert is their backup small forward according to a lot of depth charts and he's like 6'3". So adding Corey's size and outside shooting, that's a really nice fit there for him as well. And Cleveland, uh, a couple other teams, Boston perhaps, obviously Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum are phenomenal, but some depth behind them might be good. Sam Hauser is a great shooter, but he's about 6'4", so maybe adding a little bit more size in shooting. Orlando, I think, makes sense if Orlando really wants to lean in and go for it. They really need floor spacing. Jalen Suggs, Anthony Black are both phenomenal defensive players, uh, phenomenal young guards. Not Suggs has improved dramatically as a three-point shooter, but they're still not significant NBA floor spacers. Paolo Bancaro needs room to operate. Franz Wagner needs room to operate. And adding Corey into that mix and allowing him to space the floor and, and pull defenders away from the rim is going to make that Orlando team better. Those are four teams. There are a handful of other teams. A lot of playoff teams could use more shooting. It's a really valuable role. So I wouldn't limit it to those four, but they kind of stand out to me as teams that could would get more out of somebody like Corey Kispert uh, and kind of need the specific position as well as the skill set. And I think it could really line up well. That's going to wrap us up for today here on the Locked On Zags podcast. Thank you so much for making the show your first listen or your first watch of the day. We, of course, got another game this week against Jackson State on Wednesday. We'll talk about that. We'll continue to talk about Gonzaga's outside shooting concerns, with where they end up in the AP poll, various other things uh, to close out the week and get us into the holiday break. Thanks so much for making the show your first listen of the day. And until next time, as always, go Zags.